You're listening to TIP. But the thing about Warren that you get that you don't necessarily get with everybody is, you know, he, he's got your best interest at heart. He has integrity. He's not going to be lying to people for his own benefit. That's why I think they bring him on TV when we have all these crises, because they know that he's going to give it to us straight and he's going to help all of us to manage our money and, and help us through the, these trying times. In this episode, I chat with Todd Finkel about Todd's background and personal relationship with the Buffett family, what inspired him to write his book, Todd's strategy as a professor to be invited to meet Warren on three separate occasions, how Warren stays cool while everyone is losing their mind in the market, Warren's most painful mistakes, and much, much more. Todd Finkel is the Piggott Professor of Entrepreneurship at Gonzaga University. He has a long track record of success as an entrepreneur, writer, speaker, and consultant. His latest endeavor was writing on the entrepreneurial background of Warren Buffett in his book, Warren Buffett, Investor and Entrepreneur. I found Todd when I came across his book on Warren Buffett. I thoroughly enjoyed the book's different angle, looking at Warren Buffett through the lens of an entrepreneur rather than exclusively as an investor. He has some very interesting insider insights from growing up in Omaha and being in the same friend group as Warren Buffett's son, Peter Buffett. This gave him access to some excellent stories that I never read before that I know you'll enjoy. Now, without further delay, let's get right into this week's episode with Todd Finkel. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard, Patrick Donnelly, and Kyle Grieve, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Grieve. And today we bring Todd Finkel onto the show. Todd, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Kyle. You are a professor of entrepreneurship at Gonzaga University. You're also an Omaha native. What was it specifically about Warren Buffett that inspired you to write this book about him through the lens of entrepreneurship? That's kind of a long story. I'll try to uh, narrow it. And I could talk the entire hour about that. But I grew up in Omaha, had four brothers. My dad was an entrepreneur. My brothers were all entrepreneurs, and uh, we were always doing something very entrepreneurial, similar to Buffett. You know, when he was a kid, he was doing all types of entrepreneurial things. And the motivation behind that, I can talk a little bit later about what drove Warren Buffett to do the things that he did. So I'm growing up in Omaha, and uh, I went to the same junior high school and high school as uh, Peter Buffett who is uh, Buffett's youngest son. I didn't know him in junior high, but in in high school, I had a gang of friends that I hung around with that were uh, friends with Pete. They called him Pete. And we used to eat lunch every day in the cafeteria. And nobody knew about his father back then. That was in 1976. Uh, Berkshire's stock price was $89 a share. I had to look that up because I didn't even know. And he had a baseball cap and ripped up jeans, just a normal guy. He was on the, the yearbook staff, uh, the photographer, and just the nicest guy you'd want to meet. So after high school, I ended up going off to college, and he went to Stanford, and he inherited $90,000 from his grandfather when he died from his farm that they sold. And his father gave him an opportunity to go ahead 
and uh, either he could do whatever he wanted to do. $90,000, I don't know what that would be in today's dollars. That's in 1977. That's a lot of money. So what Pete did, and his father's always preached this, is his father's not a big fan of higher education. By the way, none of his kids got college degrees. That was an interesting tidbit that I learned in writing the book. However, in the past, he has said he's really abused higher education. And I think he's mellowed out over the years on that. He's, now he says that higher education is okay for the right person. He's not completely against higher ed. But so Pete just dropped out and he, he just studied music. That's what he loved and that's what he wanted to do. And, and Warren had no problem with that because he was very supportive of his kids. Uh, so that was, you know, my first exposure to the Buffett family was Pete in high school. And I was at Central High School, which was an open public high school. And his other, Susie and Howie, which are the other children, went to Central High School. And their uh, father went to Central High School. And Charlie Munker went to Central High School as well. This is a high school that was different in those days. It was open to anybody in the, in the whole city could go there. And their math department was one of the best in the country. And when I was a sophomore, they would continuously place in the top three in the country, which was unbelievable considering Omaha was not a big town. And these people, some of these people there were just brilliant kids. One of the kids, I won't mention his name, but he went to MIT and then he went to Stanford. And now he has been the CEO of two public companies in Silicon Valley. So those were the kind of people that Pete was hanging around with in high school, which is very indicative of what Warren tells us to do is hang around with people that are better than you, right? So Pete was kind of doing that back then in high school. I, I'm sure Warren was telling him that growing up. So I ended up going away a, a to school and I got an undergraduate degree. I got exposed to investments really for the first time when I was out in California visiting a friend of mine. And then uh, I was getting a degree in life sciences and I was almost done. So I kind of wanted to change my major and I decided not to. And, but I loved investments. I've always loved investments, even though I'm a professor and I study entrepreneurship and everything. Investments has always been a very important thing for me. And I've managed my own money my whole life. Maybe six months, I let somebody else do it and they lost money. So I took the money back. I ended up getting a degree and I went on and got a job at Xerox Corporation as a marketing rep. Back then, Xerox and IBM were the two best places to become a marketing rep. And I learned how to sell, which is really important in life. I learned that at a very young age, unfortunately, and I made a lot of money. Unfortunately, I hated it. I hated working for a Fortune 500 company. It just wasn't my cup of tea. I grew up with an entrepreneur. I did entrepreneurial things my whole life uh, just because I learned at 23 that money was not the answer, Kyle. So I was kind of confused and I read a whole bunch of self-help books on happiness and trying to find my place in the world. And I went back to investments. I started this investment partnership with my friend, Mark Gould, who's now in Chicago. And so we invested for a couple of years and 
And we went up and down. And one week we were talking about what color our Porsches were going to be in the next week, what graduate schools we were going to go to. We ended up going to graduate school at Wisconsin. And we both got our MBAs there. And he got into M&A. And now he's an entrepreneur. And I ended up going to, to Wisconsin and got an MBA. And I interviewed at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. I used to date the senator's daughter, Susie Zerinsky, from Omaha for the state of Nebraska. And her mom really liked me for some reason. I don't know why. And she had a connection on the Chicago Mercantile. So I was lucky enough that I had a connection. I used the connection. I went down there and I interviewed. And at the end of the interview, I was all excited and everything. They told me I'd start out as a runner. So this was in 1989. And uh, I had a bunch of student loans that I had to pay off. Even though I had a business while I was going to school, I was paying out state tuition. And as a runner, you only make $7 an hour. This is in the old days, you know, when people run back and forth from the pit and you go to the checker and then the checker calls up to the trader and everything. And it seemed like a lot of fun and I really wanted to do it. Unfortunately, I couldn't because I didn't have the money in order to do that. And that's an area where I disagree with Buffett. I'll throw in some uh, critiques of Buffett there. He says, do whatever you want. Do what you love. Okay. Okay. Don't worry about the money, basically, is what he says. Just do what you love. And, and the problem with that is, is that's not realistic. And my example right there is, I don't mean to get down on Warren about this, but sometimes you don't have the support of a family that can support you to do what you want to do. You have to rely on yourself. So I had to look at something else, even though I really wanted to do that really bad. And so I went back up to Madison where I was living and I had a business and I was wondering what the next step would be. And, and I had a, a long conversation with a professor for about two or three hours. And if you find a professor that really cares about you, you're very lucky. And I had one that did care about me and he started laughing at me uh, about going to work for somebody else. He goes, Todd, you're an entrepreneur. You'll be looking for a way out after one week, I think you should look at becoming a professor because it's very entrepreneurial. You're an entrepreneur. Focus on whatever you want to focus on and teach pretty much what you want to teach as long as you hit on the topics that they require you to do. So I ended up going into entrepreneurship. I was an entrepreneur. I had a passion for it, even though I had a passion for investments as well. But I did entrepreneurship. Now, entrepreneurship at that time only had two schools that offered PhDs. So I was lucky that I was able to go in that direction because I, by the time I got out of school, I was a hot commodity. The problem was, is there were no jobs because there were only two schools that were offering a uh, PhD. So I had to wait a while in order to get a job. And so I, I stayed in academia. 34 years now it's been, I've been in academia and it's been good to me. You know, you have a lot of freedom and independence and you just have to find the right place and the right people, the right culture where you fit in. And now the Pigot Professor of Entrepreneurship at Gonzaga University. And back in 2007, back around to your question, I know I'm going kind of a long way here. Uh, why write a book on Warren Buffett? You know, <laughs> why, uh, why write a book on Warren Buffett? Well, 
it never really came to mind. I was first exposed in 2007 to what he was doing in Omaha through my cousin, Steve Nog, who was friends with Susie Buffett, who I interviewed for the book. He said, Todd, uh, Buffett's bringing kids' schools to Omaha for a day. And he goes, I think you should apply. And so I applied just a one pager. And I said, I knew his buff, his uh, son. And we were doing some really cool stuff, nonprofit stuff. We started a separate nonprofit with six other schools and I got rejected right away. They said that the line was so too long. Don't even bother to put my uh, name on, on the line. But I really kind of wanted to go, but I wanted to, more than that, I wanted to learn about Warren Buffett. You know, this, who is this guy? How did he become so successful? What's his secret sauce? All that stuff. I wanted to learn everything that I could about the guy. So I wrote this case study during the Great Recession. And so everybody else was probably having a heart attack during the Great Recession while I was writing a case study about Warren Buffett learning about everything. And uh, so as soon as it got published, I went ahead and I had this epiphany. I wanted and I sent it to Warren and see if we could get invited to go visit him for a day. And so I sent it to him. And within 10 days, I got a letter back saying, he's a thank you for, I've got it right on my wall up above me. Thank you for writing such a great case study about me. Uh, I'm bringing you guys up in November of this year. And this was November of 2009. As a matter of fact, the, the weekend that we were there was the weekend that he bought BNSF and all these uh, people, the radio station, not radio, a TV Station people were chasing him around everywhere, but he really focused on us, the students, because he loves teaching. It's one thing about Warren is he said that he'd be a teacher if he wasn't doing what he's doing right now. And really, he is a teacher with all the stuff that he writes, and he's always talking all the time. And so we ended up spending a whole day there, and we went to a couple of his subsidiaries and two and a half hour Q&A, which is in the book. I did this three times. I'm, I'll just talk about this time three times. And all the Q&As are in the book, which are valuable and primary research, as they say, to differentiate my book from other books on Buffett. But the students, you know, they had a great time. You know, everybody thinks, okay, you know, the best thing about going to see Buffett was probably learning about how to make money. But really that what they said was uh, the best thing was is how to be a better person that they got out of it. And that was really eye-opening when I heard that from them. There are a number of things that he said that just had a lasting impact on my life. For somebody who's 21 or 22, not as much so for me, maybe for you, Kyle, the uh, most important decision you make in your life is who you marry. I wish somebody would have told me that when I was 20 or 21 years old. And they were all there and they heard it. And he said that really early, too, so they wouldn't forget it. And another thing he said, we were up there on his floor. He has this area on his floor, kind of a, a big room where he can uh, have like meetings and stuff like that. And he threw us all in there. And I was in the front row. And I remember that he was looking right at me when he said this. He goes, uh, the most successful business people that I've met in my life are not the, the people with these high-powered degrees, but they're the people that have the most business experience that think way outside of the box. That is something that has stuck with me and that I teach to my students every semester.
And what a powerful statement that is. Yeah, so we did that, and I ended up going to, to Gonzaga after that. I immediately went on the market because doing something of this magnitude, I was in the papers, I was on the radio and everything, and I did this three times. I wrote five articles about Buffett, and this was over a, a period of about nine years. And after about nine years of doing this, I, I had all this material on him, and I'm from Omaha, and I had a lot of talks with some, some of my best friends that are finance guys. Most of my friends are finance guys. And uh, one's you know, a chair of investments, and another used to be the chair of the Connecticut University of Connecticut Finance Department. And uh, they were all tell, they were laughing at me when I, I told them I was thinking about writing a book on Buffett. They thought I was crazy. I'm an entrepreneur, you know, and I'm looking for. Where's the edge? Where's the niche? And I did my homework and I looked at all the books. And in my opinion, of course, I'm probably biased here. There weren't that many really quality books on Warren Buffett. The last biography was in 2008. That's 15 years ago. A lot has happened in 15 years. And I differentiate my book. You know, I'm from Omaha. I know a lot of people. You know, and I knew Pete and, you know, all these these friends. And I can talk, tell you some stories about the people that got really wealthy in Omaha. That and I interviewed Susie Buffett through somebody that I knew, you know, my cousin. And one thing that I was always disappointed in all these Buffett books was is they never really gave you an example of a company and took you through the whole valuation process. So, and it took me a long time to do this. You have to remember, I'm a liberal arts guy. I got an undergrad in life sciences. So I'm learning all this stuff on my own too. But that's just proof positive that anybody can do this if you're willing to put in the effort. And so I, I go through on chapter six and I go through a couple of case studies on Geico and Apple. And I go through the entire process that Berkshire started buying Apple and then I look at what he would be doing before he would purchase it and looking at all the metrics and the financials. And I describe what they all mean. So somebody with a life science degree can't understand this stuff. And then I, I go through a discounted cash flow. And again, I define everything and I talk about all the different metrics in there and the interest rates that you use and how it, it can affect uh, the valuation of a, of a company. And that's not easy stuff. You know, maybe the people that are in finance think that's easy or they can just plug it into a computer. But I was doing all this stuff by hand. I'm old school. I've always had the opinion of instead of relying on a computer, and Warren's probably the same way. I'm old school, except for he can do it in his head. And I think Charlie Munger always says that, you know, Warren said, one thing I didn't tell you at lunch, I, you know, when we went out to lunch, when we visited Buffett, I sat right across from him. And the only question I really had for Warren was, how do you value a company? And, and Warren goes, uh, the discounted cash flow. And so I'm sitting there and I'm waiting for more. And he goes, uh, so I, I ask him again, I go, hey, how do you value a company, Warren? And, and he said the same thing, a discounted cash flow. So I knew that that had to be in the book, and, and I wanted to, to make sure that I gave an actual real-world example, because I never really got it out of any of these books. 
even Hagstrom didn't do it. But I like Hagstrom. I've met Hagstrom and he he's a great guy. And uh, but he, even he didn't do it. And I think his book is, might be the best book related to uh, the financial aspect of uh, Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett. So that's my rationale on doing that. And I did a chapter in the book on his mistakes. That's another chapter that I never saw anywhere in any of these Buffett books. You know, there'd be an occasional mistake here or there, but there wasn't a chapter on his mistakes. And so I did a lot of research and came up with 21 of his biggest mistakes. And then I wrote another chapter, thanks to the help of a friend of mine who's a CFA. Matt Koffler, and a really, really smart guy. And he really pushed me to do a chapter on uh, the biases, behavioral biases. And so I, I spent, a, that was my last chapter that I did. And I spent a lot of work doing that. And I kind of combined behavioral biases with Buffett's mistakes. And I, I looked at what caused Buffett to make these mistakes, what biases. And so we could learn from his mistakes and not do them ourselves. That was another differentiation. Added a, a chapter. My last chapter was focused kind of on fintech, but that changes like every hour. And I'm sure that that's way outdated by now. But it was interesting to learn about fintech and what's going on and, and learn, looking at what China's doing. When I wrote the book, they were way ahead of us. So uh, it took me 14 years to write this book, nine years of Kind of, you know, doing the whole going to see Buffett and going to the shareholder meetings. I went to 14 shareholder meetings. While I was doing, I was getting a lot of exposure or somebody on our board of directors at the university saw me getting, you know, he saw me doing all this stuff. And so he wanted to meet with me and have lunch. And he said at the end of it, he goes, how'd you like to fly to the uh, shareholder meeting on my private chat? And I said, no, I'm too busy that day. No, I, I said, oh, yeah, that sounds like great. He goes, so pick out six of your students and we'll go fly to that shareholder meeting. So we did that three years in a row. And that was just fantastic. They just love that. How'd you like to be 20, 21 years old and doing that? That's something you'll never forget for the rest of your life. That's something I never I'll never forget for the rest of my life. But the shareholder meetings are just fabulous, too. I mean, if you haven't been to a shareholder meeting, you've got to go. It's like a rock concert and a uh, cult. There's something else. I can't remember. It's crazy. It's uh, it's nuts. And the people there are really nice people and very, very smart people. And I talk about that a little bit in the book as well. And and I have a chapter on all my meetings with Buffett, the three trips that we took as well. I'll let you ask me another question. That was a long time. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. 
your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. Warren's obviously a legendary thinker, but I don't think many people know that uh, he's really loved being on his own and thinking since he was a really young child. Warren once said, and I quote, I like to work by myself where I could spend my time thinking about things I wanted to think about. I could be sitting in a room thinking, or I could be riding around flinging things and thinking. And by flinging things, he was referring to, uh, I guess, newspapers delivery on his bike. So where do you think he learned this importance of thinking while being such a young, at, at such a young age? Before I answer that, I'll tell you kind of a story related to that. One of the best parts about writing a book is, is all the people that you meet and from all over the world. And so this lady contacts me and she goes, we knew Warren when he used to ride his bike in Washington, D.C. and delivering papers. And so she told me the name of the street where he used to do it. And the name of the dog that used to chase him <laughs> down the street. And uh, that was pretty funny. It's stuff like that that makes it really a lot of fun. You know, the people that you meet uh, is awesome. But Warren, you know, he came from a family of entrepreneurs. You know, his uh, grandparents on both sides were entrepreneurs. His father was he owned a grocery store and a print shop on the mother's side and farmers going way back when they were in, in France. So there's entrepreneurship in the blood. And for my research and being a professor of entrepreneurship, uh, what we learned through a survey is that people that come from families of entrepreneurs are more apt to be entrepreneurs. So those are some reasons there. But also, you know, he grew up during the Depression, the Great Depression, and uh, his family was in turmoil. And he started really, from what I understand, I'm not so sure everybody knows this, but he started at age four selling lemonade 
on the uh, neighbor's driveway, and then he moved up to selling gum and, and then pop, and he was relentless. He was just relentless, and uh, the drive had to have come primarily from being brought up in the, the Depression, and his father lost his job, and he lost all the money that the family had. So I have said this several times, that I think he has the poverty effect. I don't know if he's ever gotten rid of it. He probably won't. But all the different entrepreneurial ventures are just fantastic. All the things that he does, and he's thought outside of the box. My favorite one is the pinball machine. When he, he bought pinball machines, and he was putting them in barber shops. And the reason why that, that stands out for me is that when I was a kid, 11 years old, 12 years old, we used to ride up to Benson. There's an area in Omaha called Benson. There was a barbershop up there, and they had a pinball machine in there. Whenever I talk about Warren Buffett, I think of that pinball machine in Benson, you know, as a kid going there. And, uh, yo, that's genius. So, you know, one of the, the uh, trips that we made to go visit Buffett, I gave an assignment to my students to come up with a new product with the intention of trying to get invited to go visit Buffett. And one group came up with the idea of a Warren Buffett pinball machine which was brilliant. And it was a, a lady that was a religious studies major and a minor in entrepreneurship. It was her idea. And we didn't have the time or the money in order to do that, but we just did a design. And to make a long story short, of course, we got invited back to Omaha after we did that. And that was awesome. But all the entrepreneurial things that he does, he was relentless, man. And he kept on doing it. He made like $76,000 by the time he graduated. And he still graduated 16th in his class when he was in uh, Washington, D.C., where his dad was a congressman. And that never stopped. It, his entrepreneurial stuff just never stopped. You know, he after he uh, graduated from high school, you know, his dad really kind of pushed him to go to college. He didn't want to go to college. And he ended up going to Penn, and then he wanted to drop out of Penn after one year. He, one year, he said he, he wasn't learning anything, and then his dad said, give it another year, and then he dropped out after his second year, and then he went to Nebraska, and he had 50 people working underneath him delivering papers while he was going to school full-time. You know, thinking about that and what I did in college, what I was doing and what he was doing, I mean... I certainly wasn't even thinking about doing something like that, you know, and my dad owned a bar growing up and I was bartending while I was in college undergrad. That's how I was making my money in undergrad. Yeah. And, and then he, he uh, after got his degree, he applied to Harvard and they rejected him. And then he applied to uh, Columbia after he read The Intelligent Investor and he ended up studying under Benjamin Graham uh, and uh uh, that's where he really started to blossom there. He got the only A-plus anybody's ever gotten under Benjamin Graham when he taught there at, at Columbia. And, and then he wanted to go work for Benjamin Graham on Wall Street, but he got rejected by Benjamin Graham because he only hired Jewish people because the Jewish people weren't able to get jobs anywhere else at any of the other banks. So Warren went back and worked for his dad. His dad had his own investment business in Omaha. So he went back there and he was selling stuff. But he still kept in touch with Benjamin Graham. And one of the things that really stands out from Warren, if you want to get on Warren's good side, is be persevere. He loves people that have perseverance and he loves people that are creative. You know, you wouldn't think a guy like Warren would love people that are creative, but he does. He really does. 
I've learned it the hard way. So he kept on persevering. He wanted to work for uh, Benjamin Graham, and, and he eventually got up there, I think, after five years. He worked on Wall Street with Graham for a couple of years, and he became a millionaire. And he went back to Omaha, and he wanted to, to go ahead and retire and just you know take a couple college classes and read some books and live off of the money that he made on, on Wall Street. And his family wouldn't let him do it. His family came up to him and said, no, you're not. You're not retiring. You're going to manage our money. And over the next 13 years, he started seven partnerships and they averaged 36% a year. And then he stopped doing that because he didn't see any opportunities after that. And so he was honest enough to say that to him. He could have still charged him money and taken their money, but he was, he's not that type of guy. You know, he's got a lot of integrity. But he bought Berkshire Hathaway, which was his biggest mistake of his uh, investment career. The reason why he bought Berkshire Hathaway was that he had shares of it. He invested in it. And the CEO of Berkshire Hathaway was willing to buy his shares. I think it was, can't remember the exact number, but he gave a commitment that was like twelve fifty. And it came back in the sheet of paper, 12 and a half cents below that. And Warren just flipped out. He was really mad. And his father passed away five days before that. That led to him making the worst decision he's ever made and a mistake that he learned from the hard way. And it's related, I think, to temperament, which is what him and Charlie always talk about is the most important thing in investing is uh, you know your your temperament which is related to biasness he ended he got really mad and he just bought this guy out and he fired him i can see warren going out and having a great steak that night the night that he uh, fired that guy but the problem was of course it was a bad industry to get into and warren being warren he didn't want to lay off these people because they had nowhere to go so he kind of hung on and he hung on uh, and he eventually dumped it, I think, in 1985. But he didn't. That's kind of the Warren way. He doesn't like to lay off employees. He cares about people. He really does. As Susie said to me when I talked to her, the people, people just don't understand how much he cares about other people and about social justice or injustices as well and uh, women's rights and things of that nature. You know, and his foundations hit on all that stuff that he's giving all of his money to. So let's look at uh, some of his uh, biggest influences. So, I mean, his father obviously was a huge influence on him, but another one other than also Benjamin Graham, like you already mentioned, but one of the lesser known ones I would say is uh, Philip Fisher. So he had a very big impact on how Buffett basically evolved away from investing in, you know, his traditional cigar butts that he learned from Benjamin Graham and kind of transitioning to quality compounders. So I'm interested in knowing what key concepts did Warren Buffett learn from Fisher that caused Buffett to transition away from that investing strategy that had worked so well for him for a very long time. Charlie really loved Phil Fisher. Charlie really pushed Warren to go in that direction. You know, and Charlie, there are some things that Charlie has done a great job of Berkshire, and that was one of them. That and, and he pushed Warren to buy C's candy. They probably wouldn't have bought C's if it wasn't for Charlie. Fisher is known for his scuttlebutt methodology. So 
he wants to buy companies, you know, for the long term. He doesn't want to have a lot of companies. He's into maybe having 10 at the most so you can keep track of them. He's not just looking at the financials like uh, Benjamin Graham. And he really wants quality companies that you can hold for the long run. And he looks at the sales team. He'll look at the R&D. He'll look at all the different facets and the management team as well. And I'm not so sure that Warren was doing that as much before. He was smoking on, I'm puffing on a couple cigarettes here and there, but he wasn't looking at the totality of it. And, And that's a great book that he wrote. Everybody should read that book. What's it called? The Uncommon Stocks and Common Profits or something like that? Yeah, something along those lines. Yeah. Focusing on solid moats, uh, having a margin of safety, all that stuff uh, is something that Phil Fisher was into. And, and Buffett really took a lot of the stuff that he's doing today from Phil Fisher kind of, and Charlie. Charlie brought in some of this stuff as well. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. 
Head to netsuite.com slash MI. NetSuite.com slash MI. That's NetSuite.com slash MI. All right. Back to the show. Outside of Fisher, like you said, Charlie Munger was, you know, a massive driving force in Buffett's evolution towards buying quality businesses. Warren seemed to really understand Munger's views that in order for them to scale Berkshire Hathaway, the cigar butts just wouldn't work because you can't make a lot of money off those for a long period of time. Charlie has said that Warren would have eventually come to the same conclusion without ever meeting Charlie. But, you know, Charlie, he's a very humble guy sometimes. So I know it's impossible to uh, quantify, but how big of an impact do you think Charlie has had on Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway? That's a hard question, you know, because I've been to all these shareholder meetings and I listen so closely to these guys, like you're at church or something. It's really hard to know. You know, like I, I gave those two examples earlier. Warren is a firm believer in giving credit to others. He doesn't have a big head. He doesn't need to take credit for everything. And so I just wonder sometimes that he's always giving all this credit to Charlie, but who's coming up with the ideas? I don't know. But obviously it's worked for them. So who am I to say anything? But he's a genius. You know, they're his kid, you know, he has, I don't know, seven or eight kids. Charlie does. And my wife is from Palo Alto. And I met her through the internet. When I went out there one time to visit her, she was a middle school counselor in Palo Alto. And Charlie Munger's grandson was at the same school. So I sat in on a class with Charlie Munger's grandson. And let me tell you something. He is the spitting image of Charlie Munger. It was pretty funny. That's just a story there. I love Charlie. I have a chapter in the book on Charlie. I initially had two chapters on Charlie, and they told me that I needed to to cut it down to one. But I love that chapter. It goes through his whole life and talks about his entrepreneurial ventures. You know, he had an investment company that he ran, and he got great returns. It's interesting about Charlie and, and Warren. I mean, they're both so humble saying, you know, investing's super simple. Anyone can do it. But, you know, you just think about the stuff that these guys have done and it's like, okay, I understand, you know, a lot of it, you, you like to simplify things for everyone else. But like, like you said, they're, I think they're both geniuses and, you know, like there's not a lot of people like Warren and Charlie. And, and I think just the amalgamation of having them together has just been lightning in a bottle. But they always say that being a successful investor is not that hard. They always emphasize that. And they've been doing that for years. You know, just buy, keep on buying and hold it for the long term. You know, and Buffett says, if you're not involved in the markets every day, 90% SPY index, low cost, 10% short term bond index. And he says, that's what his wife is going to be inheriting from him. And he said that, you know, again, I went to all these shareholder meetings, but he didn't start saying that really until about eight years ago. He wasn't talking about that at shareholder meetings before. I, I don't understand why. Maybe he was before I started going, but he really started to hit on that. Maybe after the Great Recession, he started to hit on that. Yeah, he says, if you're not involved in the markets, you're at a disadvantage information-wise. He's worked on Wall Street. He knows what's going on on Wall Street. That's all I'll say about Wall Street. So since Warren has been in business and investing now for over 70 years, it's impossible for him to have not encountered some major crises. 
Can you discuss how Buffett has performed during some of these uh, crises that he's lived through? The dot-com bust. I remember that vividly. I remember the market going up and up and up before it busted, and people were going on TV and lambasting Buffett, making fun of him, and then it collapsed. And then the NASDAQ went down like 73%. And Buffett you know, was probably laughing all the way to the bank. Berkshire was up 30%. So he just sticks to his guns, sticks to what he knows, you know, value investing, everything was going down. He was probably buying some stuff. That's an example that I remember really vividly. And then uh, the Great Recession, he came on in 2008. You probably remember this. And he wrote an op-ed in the New York Times and said, buy now buy U.S. stocks now, and I think the market was down 38% at that time, something like that. I didn't buy because I I always remember him saying, nobody knows what's going to happen over the next year or two years, and it felt like a depression, and I didn't want to lose my money, you know. I should have bought, you know, even a little bit because it was Warren Buffett. Today, I would do it if he did that, but it went down another 20% after, even after he did that. And it bottomed, the S&P bottomed on March 9th, 2009. And I believe it was uh, 53%, something like that, that it bottomed. And he was down about 50% during that time at his worst point. But him and Charlie say, they go, hey, if you're not willing to take a 50% loss in your stocks, you shouldn't be in the market. You should be in a CD or treasury or something like that. And I think that they've gone down like 50% three times. I always keep that in the back of my head too when I'm, I'm investing is, am I willing to lose half of my money, you know? And a lot of it will be dependent on the individual. If they're younger like you, you know, you can afford to lose 50% and still come back. For me, I can't afford to lose 50%. So that's dependent on the individual and their situation. And lately was... uh COVID. And I record all of it. Whatever Warren says, I record it. I've got everything recorded and I've got stuff recorded on my TV right now from him. And I'll go back and I'll listen to it. And he said, don't do anything. Because I remember he was on CNBC with Becky Quick and she asked him and he just said, don't do anything. And that was like the day that it was down 3%. And then the next day it was down another 3%. He's never been through something like this before. That was a first for him. But it turns out that he was right in doing that and not doing anything, right? I don't know what I'm going to do when Warren dies. He's my mentor on what to do and a lot of this stuff. I mean, there's other guys that I listen to that are really bright guys. But the thing about Warren that you get that you don't necessarily get with everybody is, you know, he, he's got your best interest at heart. He has integrity. He's not going to be lying to people for his own benefit. That's why I think they bring him on TV when we have all these crises, because they know that he's going to give it to us straight, and he's going to help all of us to manage our money and, and help us through the, these trying times. So Warren has frequently discussed how important investing in your circle of competence is, but the more you learn, the more your circle widens. So with that said, what do you think the primary reason for aversion to technology stocks? I mean, 
he's so intelligent. You think he could have learned that if he really wanted to, but yeah, I, w- I would love to know. Is it just that he just doesn't like them? What's the main reasoning behind that? Well, if you go back, I think if you listen to some of his older interviews, he always abuses technology and he all oh, never touched technology and uh, da 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 da. I don't think that that's true now. And I think a big reason why is because he hired two new CIOs, co-CIOs, Ted Weschler and Todd Coombs, who are more tech savvy, obviously, because they're younger. And they started to buy Apple in 2016. They bought Amazon. And one thing I never understood about Buffett is forever, he's been telling the world that Jeff Bezos was the best manager in the world. And I remember giving a presentation at the University of Iowa and telling them about that back in 2016 or something like that. And he still didn't buy Amazon. And you know how much Amazon's gone up. But eventually, you know, after you got Ted Weschler and Todd Coombs in there, you know, then they started to get into tech. They started to buy Apple. I don't think that the big positions in Apple were bought by them because they're only managing $15 billion apiece. I think the big positions were worn with Apple. And then they started to get into, uh, they bought Amazon, then they got into some fintech stuff. A Snowflake, they got in on that IPO. I don't know that much about Snowflake, but I don't even know how well they're doing. I haven't really checked them that much. Newbank and another company, I think that's down in South America, related to uh, fintech. So they're, they're slowly getting into that. And I think that's kind of the future for them. When Warren does pass away and Charlie is, they're going to be more into tech. And the question maybe I have for you is, are they going to have the green light to do whatever they want? Or is there going to be somebody that's going to be looking over their decisions? Because, you know, they have a new couple new board of director members that are, are both financial guys. They manage money, Wally Whites and Chris Davis. They're going to be seeing all that stuff, right? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you think so. And it, and it kind of makes fintech at least kind of makes sense, right? Because Buffett has such a long history of investing in banks and understanding the financial sector so well that maybe melding that with uh, technology kind of makes sense and still is somewhat in their circle of competence. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, Greg Abel, who obviously is going to take over, he definitely he's not going to make the investment decisions because, you know, he doesn't have any edge over Ted and Todd. So, yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how that, how that plays out. We had a uh, talk. At the last Berkshire meeting, I was invited to be on a panel at the Gabelli Funds Research Conference. And I was up there with Chris Bloomstrom and Adam Mead, who just wrote a book on Buffett, and Max Sykes from Gabelli. And we were talking about a lot of this stuff. We were talking about what's going to happen to Berkshire after Warren passes away, what's going to happen to the stock price. After he passes away, and these guys are really convinced that they're going to be okay because Abel, they they all really like Abel. But kind of like what you were saying, I think Abel is more of an energy guy. That's what he's been brought up in. And so Abel will probably be doing acquisitions related to energy because his expertise is not really in tech. And yeah, you know, I was kind of surprised. Everybody was really positive on Buffett, even at the last shareholder meeting, (laughs) basically I don't know if you were there, but at the last shareholder meeting, Charlie and Buffett basically said, and Abel was there, by the way, basically said, you'd have to be a fool to mess this up, what we're leaving you. 
And they didn't say it towards Abel, but they were just talking in general. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. I think that their assets, especially in energy and transportation, they're they're just they're really good assets and they're not going anywhere. So And he keeps on buying Oxy. I'm not really a hundred percent sure what's going on there. The only thing that I could think of is, is that, you know, there's not going to be as much oil. So he's looking 20 years down the road because that's the way he thinks. He's not thinking, oh, what's the market going to do tomorrow? You know, he's looking 10, 20 years down the road. Your book also, you, which you already mentioned, had a really good chapter about Buffett's mistakes that I really enjoyed because I, I love looking at mistakes, especially mistakes that really, really smart people make because if they're capable of making it well, then so am I. So you mixed uh, a lot of mistakes of omission with mistakes of commission, which I really appreciated as well. So out of all those mistakes that Warren made, which do you think was the most painful and why? Well, the most painful for him was buying Berkshire because he lost, including opportunity costs, anywhere from 300 to 500 billion. That was definitely the most painful for him. But, you know, then there's, there's losses of omission. Google, he had an opportunity to get in on the IPO of Google. And he passed on that. Amazon, you know, they didn't get in into that until late in the game. They didn't get into Microsoft. I know he has his reasons for that, but that was another big one. There's a whole bunch of them. And then the whole airline thing, the whole airline debacle, debacle, or whatever you call it. That's just crazy. He goes back and his initial investment with U.S. Air and he talks about, oh, he just hates airlines. He goes on and on about hating airlines and he talks about them all the time at the shareholder meetings about, oh, he hates airlines. And then he buys airlines right before COVID. That's pretty funny. Probably not so for him. I liked that part in your book where you mentioned that he calls himself an airaholic. I laughed at that. There was another part of your book that really stood out to me was uh, the part about how Berkshire Hathaway has no master plan. Buffett basically just kind of been showing up, deploying capital as he saw fit at incredibly high returns, and then allowing compounding to work its magic. So how is it that Warren has basically got to where he is today without ever really having you know a, a master plan or a plan for the future? Warren Buffett, every morning he reads like seven papers. And I'm probably just waking up in the morning and he's already read seven papers. His ex, not his ex-wife, but his first wife passes, passed away from cancer. And she used to say that what he's looking for is an edge over the common person, over you and I, if we read the same thing, what can he pick out of that article or out of that paper that the common person wouldn't pick? And that's where he gets a kick at being just smarter than other people. So his master plan, I don't think he has a master plan, you know. Stay within your circle of competence. You know, he follows companies and he'll follow them for 20 years, 25 years, and he'll wait for the right time to get involved with them. But, you know, they have to be a business that he knows about, that he understands, and he talks about that all the time within a circle of competence and and that really lowers the, the number of companies that are available. Now, he has $148 billion in uh, float money from insurance. And what is he doing with that? Well, every Monday morning, every Monday morning, he, this is what he says. He goes right to the uh, treasuries or T-bills online 
and buys T-bills. That's what he does with all of his money. And why not? You know, I mean, you're getting over 5% on those T-bills right now. I bought some the other day for 5.6% or yeah, 5.6%. That's not bad. The market premium on the S&P is 5%. So uh, that's one thing about Warren is he was just laughing about that at the shareholder meeting about how much money he's making in these T-bills. Every Monday he goes, that's probably the amount of money that they collect every week. And then they go right into the T-bills. There's a lot to be said there. You know, he, he was a net seller of stocks last semester or last uh, quarter. Well, Todd, I'd like to thank you so much for joining me today. Before we close out the episode, where can the audience connect with you and learn more about you and your book? You can connect with me on LinkedIn. I've got a private website, toddfinkel.com. I've got Twitter at Todd Finkel. I've got my university account. Uh, you can just go on there and hit Todd Finkel at Gonzaga University. And you can buy my book through Columbia University Press or on Amazon or all the bookstores that are out there. It's all over the place. And uh, I had a great time today, Kyle. It was a lot of fun. I probably could go on for another couple hours with you. We had fun. Yes, we did. Okay, folks, that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here very soon. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.